Today, we discuss how variation in maturity of young athletes causes large selection biases for talent identification, what clubs such as IX and Southampton have done to address this, and why educating coaches on this topic is vitally important. Welcome to the Walk Talks Coaching Podcast. I'm a student studying sport coaching and physical education at the world's leading sport uni, Loughborough University. On the podcast, we discuss everything coaching from tactics and techniques to team culture and managing egos with some of the leading experts, coaches and practitioners. You can follow us on Instagram at WT underscore coaching and on Twitter at WT coaching. Today I am very pleased to welcome a senior lecturer in sports and exercise science at Bath University who is also a consultant for the Premier League, FA, LTA and Bath Rugby, Dr Sean Cumming. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. So today we're going to talk about growth development and maturity. Now this is a subject which brings a lot of interest from the sport community but also outside the sport community because I guess everyone has gone through or is going through these stages of growth, development and maturity, but what really sparked your interest for the subject? Uh, yeah, I think it's just a fascinating subject. Uh, as you've noted, uh, everybody goes through these processes of growth and maturation, but uh, during that point of time, certainly during childhood and puberty and adolescence, we often didn't understand what was going on. And uh, it's something that you know children have relatively little control over, but has huge implications in terms of their physical, uh, but also their psychological development. And uh, what I find particularly interesting is how the growth and maturity uh, also interact with sort of psychosocial factors and uh, uh, whether it relates to uh, sport performance or health-related behaviours in children. I, I think it's a fascinating subject matter. Brilliant. And uh, in the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, there's definitely been the spike overall in psychological interest within sport and matching these two things together is, is perfect. Yeah, my background actually, uh, in terms of uh, my undergraduate, uh, I did straight psychology, uh, but from a biological perspective at Edinburgh University. So uh, that was kind of my grounding to begin with, was the psychology, but with uh, Edinburgh I had a very, very strong focus on developmental psychology, so I was always interested in that element. And the growth and maturity part really came when I was working with Bob Molina at the University of uh, well, Michigan State University doing my PhD. But one thing he noted was that in sport and exercise Sciences, most people studying growth and maturity were from a biological background. And while we had a good understanding of the impact of maturity upon strength, performance, body size, uh, the part that was missing in sport and exercise science was the interaction that it has with psychology and social factors. And that's what excited me because it's, it's looking at that interplay between these different disciplines, which I find fascinating. Plus, it was also fun to do sort of work that nobody else was kind of doing. I can imagine. And also, it's perfect because it gives you a completely different spin on it to, I guess, other people who are working in the area but didn't have that psychological background. 
Exactly, yeah. Most of my colleagues that I work with are largely coming from physiology or oxology or those areas, and uh, they're sort of maybe less uh, sort of uh, educated in the areas of psychology or less versed in those areas. Uh, and I think a lot of them have been asking those kind of questions and saying, okay, well, we know the physical implications of growth and maturity, but, you know, it, growth maturation doesn't occur in a sort of a cultural vacuum. You know, all those changes have meaning, not just for the individual, but for the uh, individual that they interact with it is value and often it's the perception of change and the reactions uh, of change from from others that are as important uh, if not more important than change itself and putting everything together i think has been really fun and it just allows us to complement each other quite nicely because they know the biology and the endocrinology better than i do but i may be able to add something from the site perspective wonderful so now looking at, I mean, if you look at two 13-year-olds, there obviously their maturity can differ greatly. But what causes this variation in maturity? Okay, so the variation in maturity is going to be about 60 to 80% down to uh, genetics. So uh, with the key factors, what, what you inherit from mum and dad. Uh, so it's really no surprise that when, you know, the Eastern European programs were looking for late maturing gymnasts, the first thing they did was look at mum. You know, if mum was a late developer, there's a good likelihood that the daughter's going to be a late developer as well. Uh, so 60 to 80% of it is down to genetics simply and inheritance. Uh, you can have environmental influences. Uh, they tend to have a greater impact upon boys than girls. Boys appear to be the weaker sex when it comes to the impact of the environment. So things such as, say, for example, low socioeconomic status, uh, nutritional issues, uh, that can result in a delay in maturation. Uh, but we also see that there appear to be some factors out there which can actually accelerate maturation. So uh, examples of stress within the environment, particularly acute stresses. Uh, there's some really interesting data that came out of China following one of the recent uh, earthquakes uh, where they actually found an acceleration in pubertal development. Uh, and the argument there was, you know, they'd lost so many people within, uh, you know, the, the, the the spell of the catastrophe, that it was almost like biology trying to right itself by accelerating puberty so it gained more reproduction. And I guess that's one of the key things we have to keep in mind. If we're trying to understand maturation and, uh, and puberty, uh, we really need to look at what the primary purpose of it is, and that is reproduction and, and growing old, getting mature. And uh, so it's fascinating to see how you know biology and environment can interplay against each other. Yeah, I think it's quite incredible. I don't think many people would have thought that you know, small amounts of stress or would have um, affected growth and maturity anyway, like that at all. Yeah, we see it, you know, uh, things such as, you know, sort of, uh, kids growing up in sort of poor environments, deprivation, uh, etc. Or if somebody, say, restricting their diet, uh, you know, biology is going to kick in. And, you know, if you think about it, if you're, there's a really good example. If you look at, say, girls who are maturing in the slums of India, they're going to mature in about four years and delay of the girls who are in India growing up in affluent areas. And it makes absolute sense because, you know, who wants a baby when you're living in the slums at the age of 13 or 14? Mm. That is not what you want. So it makes absolute sense at that point in time, you know, the biology is going to be looking at the environment and that interaction and the interplay between the environment and the biology is going to come up with the best strategy strategy for the individual. The best strategy in that sense, you know, if you're looking to protect the young uh, or, or those who, you know, you will, you will sire, would be to then delay the whole maturation process and, you know, reproduce at a much later age when you might be out of that situation. Wonderful. It's, 
Very, very interesting that. So now you talked about a bit there about the differences between boys and girls. And in terms of uh, that early maturing uh, individuals, so the ones who generally, as we'll go on to speak about, uh, traditionally were picked for the majority of sport teams over the late maturers. But in comparison to boys and girls, do they have the same changes in terms of maturity? Uh, no, obviously, uh, once puberty kicks in, we get a differentiation in terms of the physiques, body compositions, uh, performance and fitness of the boys and girls. Uh, there are some similarities, but some differences. So if you look at uh, boys and girls when they go through puberty, those early maturing boys, those early maturing girls will have a much more intense pubertal growth spurt. And as such, they will be both be bigger, taller, heavier at that time point. Uh, the gains in weight made by boys, however, are largely down to lean mass, where the gains in girls are going to be more so down to fat mass at that point of time. Uh, You're also going to see a change in the physiques. The boys are broadening at the shoulders. Uh, The girls, in comparison, are broadening and rounding at the hips. Uh, The lean mass in boys is going to be uh, sort of distributed across the body, particularly in the upper body. Uh, With the girls, it's going to be a distribution of fat mass, predominantly around the buttocks, the thighs kind of area. Um, So what we see is that uh, for boys in most sports, you know, early maturation is a big advantage, particularly in those sports that demand speed power, strength and size, your rugby, your football, naturally we get the selection for early maturing boys in those sports. Uh, For girls, early maturation can lead to an advantage uh, in any sport that requires bigger size or maybe greater absolute power and strength. So girls sports such as tennis will select for early maturing girls from the ages of about nine onwards. But in many sports which might involve movement of the body or agility or balance or aesthetic qualities or endurance, uh, early maturation is not going to be an advantage for girls so we'll start to see girls start to get screened out of sport at that point of time and in general we see early maturing girls being less physically active and uh, of course this is problematic because we know that adolescence is a really important point of time in terms of establishing sort of habitual behaviours pertaining to physical activities or lifetime behaviours but also in terms of sort of a bone development you know about a third of bone mineral accrual is going to occur at that point of time and if girls are not being active they're not going to benefit from you know that activity in terms of supporting bone growth so where there appears to be an advantage for the early maturing boy that Certainly physically, there's a disadvantage for the early maturing girl. And I should also point out psychologically, the early maturing boys tend to be particularly confident. Uh, the reason being is that those changes they experience are very much in line with what is sort of uh, an ideal value or body type in, in, for males in Western society, being bigger, stronger, more muscular. So their confidence is sky high. We know that confidence is a big driver of motivation in sport. So they're continuing to participate in sport. Uh, the early maturing girls, when we look at their perception, of the self, they tend to have less uh, uh, sort of a, a lower physical self-concept, a lower perceptions of attractiveness, physical fitness, sports competence, and so it's really not surprising they're dropping out of sport. So some similarities, but also a lot of differences between the early maturing boys and girls. Fantastic. As you just mentioned, and obviously with your psychological background, but it's such an important area, um, period, as you said through yeah. adolescence with in terms of physical uh, physical activity in both yeah. boys and girls but until i guess this was researched enough we wouldn't have identified this at all of having effects on the dropout rate in sports for girls 
Yeah, well, if you think about it, you know, there has been quite a lot of research. Uh, my former boss, Bob Molina, uh, who's still active in terms of researching in this area, uh, people such as Bob Molina, Adam Baxter-Jones, Joe Eisenman, people like that have been researching this area for quite some period of time. And also in developmental psychology, a lot of people have looked at the impact of pubertal timing. And uh, so there's actually quite a lot of evidence there showing the relationship between maturity timing and physical activity. What really kind of was missing was the uh, looking at the psychological elements that might mediate those relationships and uh, that's where our kind of work has come in and has shown that you know not every early maturing girl will uh, you know drop out of sport uh, but it appears to be their interpretation of the changes which appear to be more important than the changes themselves so some early maturing girls will go through puberty and they'll perceive those changes as not being a barrier to physical activity they'll perceive it as an attractive part of becoming a woman uh, and you uh, you know, they'll perceive themselves in a very positive manner and those girls will continue on in sport. But on average, uh, most girls don't perceive things that way. Uh, uh, so those ones will be more likely to drop out. But from a teaching perspective, it's quite encouraging because it suggests to us that if we can create environments that support early maturing girls and encourage them to perceive puberty as a positive thing, uh, something to embrace, uh, then hopefully we can maybe reverse some of those sort of, uh, sort of uh, risk behaviours in terms of dropping out of sport, uh, increase uh, you know, drinking and drug use, for example, which is also consistent with early maturation in girls. Smashing, it sounds like there's some great work being done there. Now, I think That's- I'm right in saying that you're originally from Orkney and there's... Um, <laughs> There's quite a few salmon farms up there and you have quite an interest in salmon. But even more interestingly, the, the actual growth and development of salmon is quite, um, it's quite topical when you're looking at this topic, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite funny. My my brother actually studied marine biology at uh, Aberdeen University, and uh, he actually is the managing director for a whole series of salmon farms in the Shetland Islands. Uh, it works for uh, Greek Seafoods and uh, a big Norwegian company. And it's funny because uh, anytime we can, we're talking about the research together, he always brings up examples from marine biology, and it's fun because you know you see these similarities uh, in terms of the impact of growth and maturity on physical activity. Uh, across animal species and that kind of shows you that you know a lot of these factors that we look at do actually have a biological basis so uh, the reason this whole story with the salmon came up is I was talking to him about some of uh, I have a PhD student who's been working with uh, Royal Ballet with One Dance UK looking at uh, selection uh, and maturity in ballet and ballet is a classic sport where they select for late developing girls Uh, they have the you know the ideal aesthetics uh, for ballet they have long legs, a short torso, the more lean mass, uh, less fat mass, and uh, you know that gives them a benefit in terms of their development uh, and selection. And so I was telling my brother about this, and he goes, well, it's the same thing in salmon farming. We select for late developers. And I goes, come on. I goes, how can you explain this? And he says, well, you think about it, when a salmon uh, hits puberty, uh, it changes greatly. Uh, so, you know, they, they develop these big hooked jaws. A lot of the colour from the flesh goes out to the, to the skin, you know, uh, you know to, to, to make it a brighter colour. And he says the quality of the flesh just becomes quite poor at that point of time. So if you've got a salmon that's hit puberty, in terms of selling it, you know, you get very, very poor price for it. Uh, so the last thing you want as a salmon farmer is a, is a salmon that's going to hit puberty relatively early. But uh, they also want salmon that are going to be big so they can sell them too so what they actually select for in salmon farming is fish that grow quickly 
but mature late. So that means that you've got the fish for two or three years worth of growth where it's a big, big fish by the time it's about to hit puberty. And obviously just before it hits puberty, that's when you want to come in and harvest them so you can maximize the profit. And I thought this was a really nice example in terms of, you know, why growth and maturation are not exactly one and the same. They are related to one another, but they're not exactly one and the same. And just because you're a late developer doesn't mean that you're not growing fast. Uh, so it's just a really nice example of how the two constructs are quite different. Amazing. I don't think, uh, if you look at the two titles of yourself and your brother, you wouldn't imagine that the two subjects could link, but they uh, <laughs> they obviously have that. Now... It- He's very well read, and uh, I think the thing with growth and maturation as well is it's something that everybody's got a story about, everybody understands to some extent. So people in other fields are able to relate to this stuff quite easily, I think. Perfect, yes, I, I agree. So if we look now, what are the implications for maturity timing, and how does this affect coaches? Okay, so... When we started doing our work with the Premier League, one of the big issues and concerns that had been raised across the academies was that maturity influences selection biases. So, as I said, you know, early maturing boys are going to have those big advantages, and those advantages appear from the ages of about 11 and onwards. So, they're going to hit puberty first. So, when they hit puberty first, they have that big, intense growth spurt. So, they're much bigger, much heavier than their peers, but also from a physical perspective, they're stronger, faster, more powerful. And uh, some of the data suggests that almost about 40% of the variation in performance can be down to whether or not you're an early maturer. Technically, they may not be any better, but because they're bigger and more physical and stronger and more powerful, they typically dominate in sports. And so what we see from the ages of 11 onwards, particularly in the boys, is that there's a selection bias towards early developing boys. Uh, The early developing boys are overrepresented. The normal kids get screened out. The late maturing boys are practically non-existent by the time you get to 15 or 16. In fact, there was some data from Man Johnson looking at Man United and Aspires Academies and by the time you got to uh, the under 16s and the under 17s about 60 to 80 percent of all the boys were early maturing and that's just because they've won the genetic lottery you know being early maturers not because they're brilliant football players Uh, by that point in time the normal kids who should make up about 60 to 70 percent were down to 20 percent the late developers who should be about 15 percent they were down to two and to be absolutely honest two percent at 16, 17 is pretty good for an academy. Many academies we go to, you will not find late maturing boys from the ages of 14 onwards. In fact, in rugby, in the academies we've looked at in rugby, we haven't found a late maturing boy yet. And it's not because they're not good athletes, but it's simply because they physically can't compete at that point in time. And the downside is that the early maturing boys, they play to their strengths. And that's fantastic for them at 13, 14, 15. But the problem is is they also stop growing earlier too. And eventually the others will catch up or they'll have to play against full-grown adults. And they won't have developed those type technical and psychological skills if they just relied on their physicality. On the flip side, you've got many, many talented late developers who, despite their ability, are simply getting deselected from the systems. And every story, every club that I, I work with has a story of some player that they had in their system who was released because they were too small, or they're going through a growth spurt and experiencing temporary dips in performance, and they've let them go because they haven't considered growth and maturity. And eventually they grow, eventually they develop, and it might take a long period of time, but eventually they come through. And this is the big issue. You know, we're investing in the wrong boys half of the time and not challenging the early developers enough. But we're also losing a lot of late developers. So what we have is a very inefficient and very ineffective system. It's some outstanding statistics you've just mentioned there, that 60 to 80% of under-17 boys in, academy, in that academy was early maturing. 
That's yeah. I, I don't think many people would really realize that until you know they get the data. But it's uh, I know in Barcelona now they well for a number of years obviously their possession base style and it's it's very specific there to their team. But they lose a, a large amount of games uh, before the ages of I, I think it's like under 14s. They lose a, a large amount of games, but then after that because they focus so much on ball mastery and those technical elements it doesn't matter as much about whether the the uh, their athletes are early maturing late maturing because they haven't been playing in a way where strength and speed necessarily is affects their performance yeah there's no doubts about it uh, there are certain clubs who appear to have a slightly better handle on it uh, than others but you know even even if you look at Barcelona's academy you will still see those uh, selection biases towards the early developers uh, but what is at least good there is they actually appear to be handling some of those late developers and keeping them in the situation uh, Messi was a really f- an interesting example of that Messi joined them I believe it was about the age of 13 or so and uh, a lot of people always go on you know we do this work in biobanding where we mature match and a lot of people always go on about oh Messi wasn't biobanded, he didn't need biobanding. If they actually do read the story of the biography of Messi, when he came to Barcelona he actually was played down for a period of time. He was considered too small for the team that they had at that point of time and it was only for about six months or so but they played him down and you know he thrived in that situation uh, they also talked specifically in that biography about a player who came from Argentina before Messi who was in a similar position who was quite small but they didn't play down and, and didn't thrive uh, so you know I, I think there's a lot of knowledge out there in some of the clubs out there already and some examples of good practice I think the one club I probably would highlight uh, I think United and England were really ahead of the game when Mandy Johnson and Fer- were there. They were really establishing excellent practice in that area. But the one club in the continent who have been really on the ball with this is uh, Ajax. And uh, one of my good colleagues, uh, Jan Veland Tunison, uh, was there as a movement scientist. And they were biobanding 15 years ago at Ajax with regards to their training and development and recognising these differences in growth and maturation. Uh, so, so, yeah, there is some excellent practice out there already. Uh, it's just that often it hadn't been put in together in a systematic manner that the Premier League has done nowadays. Definitely, and I mean, Ajax, you just mentioned there, they're churning out talent after talent after talent, and obviously reaching the semi-final of the Champions League last season, that they've done so well, so yeah, they have to be definitely doing something differently to other European clubs, because they don't have the same uh, buying, well, they don't go and buy you know world-class players, they're, they're really promoting from their system. Yeah, of course, the, the equivalent over here would be Southampton. You know, Southampton have uh, a number of players who've been classically developers that they've recognised those uh, the impact of maturation and uh, have adjusted training programmes or expectations accordingly. A uh, really nice example of that as well uh, was with uh, Gareth Bale. So Gareth Bale was at Southampton and was quite a late developer and went through his growth spurt around 14, 15 or so and uh, experienced a dip in performance. And there were questions about actually keeping him at that point of time and uh, I think he was only kept by a vote of plus one and uh, because some of the coaches and the staff had recognised he was going through his growth spurt so they altered the training programme and uh, he eventually came through it and fascinatingly enough we've been doing some work with Southampton with my PhD student Megan Hill and Sam Scott recently has been going back looking at five years worth of growth data and what it appears to come through in the data is that yeah as kids go through the growth spurt there appears to be this dip in performance. 
Now, that won't occur for all players. You know, some players will handle the gross part effectively. But if you are going to be making a call or a decision on a player, you don't need to know just if they're early or late maturing, but are they also going through the gross part at that point of time? Brilliant. As well, I mean, obviously Gareth Bale's gone on to have an incredible career, but I think talking about the Southampton Academy, uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, he puts his career down and the survival of his career down to the maturity matching and bybanding that Southampton has done. Yeah, James Bunce was there. So James Bunce was the guy I worked with with the Premier League uh, who you can establish the kind of biobanding and uh, he worked with uh, Dan Hunt as well in terms of setting up the whole EPP growth maturation sort of measurement programmes and uh, it was uh, uh, James who was behind the uh, biobanding initiative as well. He's since moved on and he's applying a lot of similar kind of work in US soccer. Um, so James was working with uh, Southampton at that point of time and uh, with Alex and uh, they said that, you know, Alex was a very late developer and they could tell that if he moved up with his regular age group, he was going to really, really struggle physically. Very, very talented boy, but the physical gap was just going to be too big at that point of time. So he spoke to his mum and his dad. Uh, his dad, I think, is Mark Chamberlain, a former player, and his mum was a, a very educated lady as well. I can't remember what profession she was in, uh, but they both understood the process of it. They explained the purpose and the benefits of playing down. He played down for a year, eventually went through his growth spurt, caught up through the rest, but uh, it allowed him to still thrive in the situation, which, which, which was important. This is one of the key things, is that when you are playing a player up or playing a player down, it's very important important that you educate the player on the purpose and the rationale behind it so that they see this as not being you know, a, a stigma in terms of you being a bad player, but actually this is because we're invested in you. I remember doing a session, it was one of the AYA sessions for the FA, and one of the coaches said, you know, my club uh, won't let us play players down. They uh, tell us to take individual differences into account, but they won't let us players play let our players play down because they feel it will create stigma. And he says it doesn't make any sense because we're losing some of our best players because of this. And it was the coach from Tottenham who put his hand up and he says, "Look, you know, two of the guys who've made it into our first team now played down their entire academy because that was what was right for them." So we will then go to players who are in similar situations and we'll explain that these players have succeeded this way. And so it almost becomes a pathway to success. And he said, you know, Southampton could do the same. You could call it the Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain pathway. So it's about education and explanations and realising that might only be for a year. It might be only a couple of games playing down, a couple of games playing up, etc. Uh, and uh, if you can do it that way, you can take away a lot of the stigma associated with it. Definitely. I think it's that education that's 100% is key. To, for everyone to understand it but obviously the, the academies want to create the best players for their first team and yep. this is just another you know, string to their bow that's going to be able to help them do that yeah, and it's a, it's a challenging one for some of the, the, the lower division teams because in the lower division teams, you know, the academy players can be expected to play at the age of 18 or so. They can get thrown in because less resource, for example, and uh, the manager, the first team manager may need them at that point of time. Um, the challenge there is that the manager at that point of time wants the player who can play from now. They're typically not thinking about two or three years down the line because of the fact that they're probably not going to be there for two or three years down the line. They need to get success and wins now. And as such, that has probably made the bias towards the early maturing boys even stronger in the lower divisions, at least in the junior division, or at least in the Premier League and the higher sort of uh, place clubs. They have a little bit more luxury in terms of more time to develop players, uh, which makes it uh, a little bit easier for them. Yeah, it is an issue because... Obviously, that results and win-it-all-cost performance just gets pushed back a couple of years. And 
for, for the players. So you've been doing some, or for a number of years now, yourself and others have been doing some work with biobanding and maturity matching uh, competitions in the Premier League. So can you yep. just explain to the listeners a bit about what exactly that is and why you've been doing it? Yeah, so biobanding is basically the grouping of athletes in relation to uh, growth maturity characteristics rather than simply the chronological age groups. Now, the reason we do this is because within an age group, you can get biological age differences in boys between the ages of five to six years. So you could technically have a bunch of 12-year-olds where one boy is biologically 15 and another boy is biologically nine. And so we want to kind of get rid of those David versus Goliath situations where one kid just simply takes over the entire game and nobody really benefits. The big early maturing boy isn't being challenged. The late maturing boys simply can't compete at that point of time. So that's really important to take into consideration. And uh, so the clubs recognised that they had these kind of problems in age group competitions. Now age group competition is great. If you want to match kids on elements of follow age, experience, cognitive development, social development, fantastic. But it doesn't sort of address the biological age differences. So the clubs came to us and says, look, could we have some games where we actually group players by the biological ages that can sit alongside age group competition? Um, the whole concept of maturity matching had been out there for actually a bit of time. You know, uh, people like Bob Molina and Baxter Jones had written papers on the subject matter, uh, but nobody really had put uh, the strategy into place where actually testing, you know, the concept of whether there would be any benefits. And we set up the systems for the pre- League and other academies that we could now identify the maturity of all the players. We could quite easily with the PMA uh, come up with groups of bands where we could ban players by the biological ages. Um, so what this would involve is we might have a band where we have okay all boys who are between 85 to 90 percent of adult stature. So boys just taking off on the growth spurt. Then we might have another band, which is, say, 90 to 95, where we've got boys who are kind of post-growth spurt, uh, who might be a little bit more muscular at that point of time. And so the idea is we're restricting the variance in the maturity. Now, we'll still have big boys and small boys because of constitutional differences, but we won't have these David versus Goliath situations. Now, another thing that the biobanding forces players as well is it forces those early maturing players to play up against similar maturity but older, smarter, wiser, late maturing players who are coming down. And the idea here is that the early maturers will no longer be able to rely on their physical qualities, so they'll have to play a more technical, tactical oriented game. And those late maturing older players, they should have more opportunity to command the game, to actually impose their skills upon a game and, and not have physicality to be a barrier for their development. And Southampton actually refer to this as command and challenge. So the late maturers are commanding the game, the early maturing boys are getting their challenge. for the, So they're almost like flipping the experiences on their heads. So all of a sudden the early maturer gets what the late maturer gets, the late maturer gets what the early maturer will get. And uh, so we decided we'd run these competitions and uh, we trialled them out. We had a number of clubs who were involved. I think the first tournament was Reading, Stoke, Norwich and Southampton. Aston Villa and Watford were involved in the second tournament. And uh, we sort of uh, ran these tournaments and uh, at the end of the tournaments we did series of questionnaires but we also uh, looked at focus groups, sitting down with the early and late maturers to see well, what their experiences were. And of course, we really, nobody had really done this before so nobody had a clue whether or not it would be useful or, or not. So it was really important for us to kind of tease 
tease out what the kids thought about it. And we also sat down with the coaches too. So when we interviewed, we've interviewed a total of 48 boys across the two tournaments. And what's been fascinating is that 47 of the 48 boys liked the concept of biobanding and wanted it integrated as part of the Games programme. Not as a replacement for age groups, but something that sits alongside age group competition. But what convinced us that something was going on was that the reasons for the wanting to support the initiative were very, very different for the early and the late maturing boys. The early maturing boys said, crikey, this was tough. This was a challenge. You know, I couldn't rely on my physicality. I actually had to pass the ball. I had to play as part of a team. Uh, I had to release the ball much more quickly. It was more technically and tactically oriented. Uh, but this was good because I'm missing out on this challenge when I play in my age groups. And I need this challenge if I'm going to be able to compete in the under-18s, the under-23s, when I'm playing against full-grown men. Uh, they also really appreciated that the older, late-maturing boys were taking them under the wing. They were teaching them and they were learning in the situations and they described the whole process as a much better learning experience. Now, the late-maturing boys said, OK, it was less of a physical challenge, but they really appreciated the opportunity to command the game for once and that they could actually you know, demonstrate their ability. Uh, and what was interesting, as I, as I explained with the early developers, was that they were taking on these leadership roles and Coaches, it was fascinating. Coaches were saying, "Look, this kid when they see boo to a goose in a regular age group game. In fact, he's the weak link in our team." But I was seeing stuff out of him I'd never seen before, uh, and he actually was demonstrating abilities uh, that uh, we hadn't seen before, which was great. And uh, I was giving them a fairer evaluation and more opportunity to use their physicality and the technical aspects. And, and this is important because we're doing some an analyses just now down at AFC Bournemouth, and the data that we've got from David Johnson and Ben Bradley across the season is showing that in the regular age group games, the early maturing boys are just bossing it. They're involved in more physical sort of a, a engagements, uh, more offensive, more defensive actions. Uh, and in these kind of situations where you flip it on the head, actually the late mature gets more opportunity to develop their skills, use their skills, demonstrate their skills. So uh, there was clearly different benefits for the earlies and lates, and what we were finding is it was consistent across the competitions. And even when we've done these tournaments in the US soccer, the US soccer kids tell us exactly the same thing. What's fascinating is the girls tell us exactly the same thing as well. Those early maturing girls of which there are less of in soccer, uh, those early maturing girls who are left are bigger and stronger and so they're getting the same experiences as the early maturing boys in the biobanding. So it's been real fun and uh, what's been interesting now as well that there's other studies that are coming out. Chris Tilson's doing some work at Hull. Uh, uh, Will Abbott at Brighton has done some really nice work uh, using completely different methods, different samples, and they're all finding very, very similar things. So, uh, yeah, we're more and more convinced that there seems to be some benefits to it. And what was fascinating as well, the coaches' perceptions were exactly in line with what the boys were telling us as well. That's great. Um, the positive feedback is really key for that buy-in, and it's great that it's also affecting all different parts. It's affecting the tactical, technical, psychological and social parts of all the players' games. Now... Uh, if we just move on to how I've well actually I read a bit about how you can compare the fitness tests and the biological age groups and that has yeah. a completely different um, or you can view it completely differently to if you just compared them chronologically yeah uh, so as part of the uh, 
work we did with the Premier League is we put all the equations for the growth of maturation into the PMA, the player management application, which also takes in the fitness testing data, but it also takes in all the injury audit data as well. And one of the things we, we knew was that if you look at an early maturing boy, you compare him against all 12-year-olds, he looks like an absolute world beater. He looks fantastic. Uh, whereas you look at the late developer, he's going to look like he's absolute rubbish. But it's really not fair in those instances because you're comparing a boy who is biologically 14 against 12-year-olds or a boy who's biologically 10 against 12-year-olds. So uh, what we wanted to do and we were able to do with the PMA was actually to create standards based upon all of the clubs, the fitness data that was coming in, uh, where we could actually have the boys compared not just relative to their chronological age but also relative to their biological age. Um, this was really quite fascinating because you could look at these early maturing boys and they would look absolutely like world beaters in their own age group. But when you compare them relative to all kids of the same biological development, you would see a very different pattern. Well, a kid might be a world beater in terms of speed, strength and performance. They might actually be quite average and they might actually be under par in some areas when you actually compare them relative to the biological cohort. And that gives you a little bit more insight in terms of where an athlete may need to improve and over their overall true ability. It doesn't mean they're going to be a bad athlete, but it gives you an idea in terms of what we thought was a strength is maybe actually a weakness. Now, we've done exactly the same thing for the Lawn Tennis Association as well. They had a whole wealth of about 3,000 data points of fitness testing that we were able to create not just age standards but biological standards as well and again it comes through that often the late developers are actually pretty decent when you compare them relative to their biological cohort and I know that certainly with the LTA and I know that with uh, some of the clubs now they will actually take those evaluations into consideration when they're doing their player retention meetings um, not just things looking at fitness but some of the clubs will also be looking at match performances where they will look at the match performance of a player when they were the most mature within their cohort or the least mature within their cohort and so they're great in both situations brilliant that's a player that's somebody who's performing well irrespective of their maturity but if they're brilliant when they're most mature but pretty crap when they're least mature then you might ask some further questions about them so uh, it, it's an interesting area uh, it's not just us doing work in this area the chaps up at Leeds met so uh, Kevin Till Ben Jones uh, Steve Cobley who was with Leeds who's now moved over to uh, uh, I think it's at Sydney University been doing some interesting stuff looking at the effect of maturity but also relative age as it relates to things such as swimming performance and correcting performances on the basis of uh, you know differences in relative age and maturity so it's, it's giving us a little bit more insight in terms of the abilities and the true future potentials of these, these boys and girls which is nice Yes, yeah, it's, it's fantastic and it's really great research and the yeah. fact that you can we can finally I guess see it more objectively of how actually good these individuals are compared to their biological age groups is really really important yeah it's nice in terms of monitoring progress too as well because you could have a kid who is you know showing improvements in the performance but relative to their overall development they might actually be stagnating or they might not be improving at all relative to their biology uh, so it gives you an opportunity to partial out some of the effects associated with training and those effects which might be associated with normal growth and maturation so for example in tennis if we have somebody who's at the 75th centile for speed they may still be improving their speed but they could with development drop to the 50th or the 25th centile which would then give us cause for concern in terms of what we're doing with their speed training maybe isn't working we maybe need to reconsider uh, what we're doing with them. Incredible, yeah, it's, it's definitely linking into those training implications. You've got to have a think about that. So, lastly, Sean, is there anything else that coaches can do uh, in order to help and understand this growth and maturity and the development of their athletes? 
Yeah, I think education is the first point. Uh, that's why I think we had so much success with the work in the Premier League, is we had a lot of really smart people within the clubs. Uh, but uh, before setting up all these systems for measurement with the Premier League, uh, the first thing we did is we put on workshops for all the sports scientists, the medical practitioners, etc., where we educated them on the subject of growth and maturation, why it was important, why it was important to measure, how to measure, how often to measure, so that when the systems uh, were set up and the information was coming in, they could understand the information. And what was exciting was that, you know, it was the clubs that came up with all these exciting strategies as to how we might use the information. Um, That's important because they know a lot more about developing athletes than we do as as academics. Uh, So educating yourself on the subject matter of what growth and maturity is, the implications it has for performance, for training, uh, is definitely useful. Uh, Research and work I would definitely point uh, people towards would be the work that John Oliver and Rodri Lloyd have done out of Cardiff Met, looking at uh, the impact of... uh, growth and maturation and the youth physical development models, how one might adjust training programs relative to uh, physical development and also the interplay between technical competence and physical development, you know, recognising that just because a kid is physically mature, it doesn't mean they should be, say, lifting heavy weights or doing particular training programs and that you've got to have the technical basis uh, before you would maybe match the training relative to the maturity. But if they've got the technical components, then ideally you can match the training to the physical uh, development of of the athlete. So I'd highly encourage people to read around that subject matter. And uh, But yeah, setting up systems of measurement, uh, you know, educating yourself in the area I think is the key thing and you know, not being scared not to trial out things and new ideas etc I think you know that's where the Premier League have done a fantastic job is you know they started concepts such as bioband and yeah they got a lot of criticism for it there was a lot of people who told them it was absolute nonsense uh, but you know it's, it's important to try these things out if they work great if they don't work well that's equally good as well uh, you know the worst thing you can do is sit around and do absolutely nothing so, you know, I think educating yourself and being willing to take risks and try things is important. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Sean. This, hopefully this discussion has gone a long way. It's been very interesting. Hopefully it can go and help a lot of other coaches and educate them on this topic. But um, yeah. if anyone else wants to have a look more at your research... I presume they can go to ResearchGate and find a bit more yeah, about that. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I think I would be fired if I was on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm the right person for that. Uh, but yeah, I do have a ResearchGate page, and we update uh, that with uh, you know the projects that we're doing with. I'm very very blessed. I have some fantastic graduate students just now, and a variety of different organisations and clubs, British Gymnastics. We've got Tate Chill up there doing some really good work looking at training load, growth, and maturation. Um, David uh, Johnson down at Bournemouth, Megan Hill at Southampton, James Platt at Man United. And so what we do is uh, when, when the research comes out, we typically uh, update uh, all of our work uh, uh, on the ResearchGate page. And we also uh, include links to articles or, or things uh, you know, that we think other people should be taking a look at. So that's probably one of the best ways to find us. But yeah, if anybody ever wants to get in contact to discuss the subject more, I'm always happy to chat to folk. Smashing. Thank you very much, Sean. Okay, thanks for the opportunity, Dan. Really appreciate it. No worries. That's the end of the podcast, guys. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I thoroughly did. Subscribe for more and follow us on Twitter at WT Coaching.